A month later, after giving birth to uh, my son, I was leaving my aunt's house to go meet my boyfriend. And as I was leaving and pushing the stroller across the street, I heard a big crash. And I knew it was some kind of car accident. And I see my little brother just running. And I asked him, my little brother was with my boyfriend. I asked him, I said, hey, where's, you know? And he said he got hit by the car. You can see that it was pretty bad. Uh, he was crying, he was repenting. The paramedics came, rushed him to Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx, where he was pronounced dead. And I just thought about him repenting and asking God to forgive him of his sins. And that kept playing over and over in my mind. And the church that he took me to, they came and they found where I lived. They witnessed to me right there in my living room. And they asked me, they said, if you were to die, Today, where would you spend your long eternity? When I was five years old, I was taken away from my mom, myself and five other siblings. Um, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, it was a social worker that came into our house and there were police. They came in and they took us and put us in the back of a um, police car, myself and my other siblings. We were put in to one foster home, and in this foster home, um, there were other foster children there. They split up my sister and one of my brothers, well, actually two of my brothers, and they placed me with one of my older sisters. And in this foster home, the foster mom, she, she didn't really speak English. Um, they spoke a lot of Spanish, and um, she shaved off me and my sister's hair. You know, we always had long hair. She shaved our heads like boys. Um, I remember one time, I was five, I didn't have problems using the bathroom or anything, but she would put a pamper or a diaper on me and I would have to lay on the uh, a workout bench, a bench where, you know, guys, they, they work out on in the gym. And I had to stand in the corner and I would have to eat um, Sometimes the meat was pulled off the bones and it was just bones that she gave me. Eventually they took notice that uh, we weren't being treated well in this foster home and they placed us in a different foster home, which was in Brooklyn, New York. And in this foster home, our foster mom, she was much older. So we called her grandma. She had other grandchildren. So we called her grandma. She treated us wonderful. Wonderful. She grew our hair back. Uh, we were in school. She fed us, you know, no problems. But being so young and not understanding why I was taken away from my family, I became very violent. I began to fight at such a young age, at six years old. I was already seeing a psychiatrist. I don't remember everything, but I was told that I would, during school, I would take a chair and hit other children in the head. And so I was told that I had to see a psychiatrist, that I had a lot of uh, issues. But I can remember just being angry. I became very angry. I was violent. I wanted to go home, wanted to be with my family. I'm just a child. I don't understand why I was taken away. And I started to see this psychiatrist. And I did not know my father. Um, I don't have memories of my mother being around at such a young age, 
Um, and this psychiatrist would ask me questions about my father. I did not know my father. And the psychiatrist would ask me if my father would hit me with chains and ask me things that just wasn't true and say that I've said these things. And I can remember as young as I was that these things were false. It wasn't true, but they were writing these things down and claiming that I said that, you know, my father has done these things to me. So we're in a foster, foster home in Brooklyn for a few years, loved the family. Um, like I said, I was very violent. I was bad. Um, not sure if uh, she was supposed to whoop me, but I got a lot of whoopings. Um, my sister, I remember being in a foster home and my sister, she just seemed like there was no problem. She's older than I, I am. And she seemed like she didn't have a problem with being there. And I remember one time just seeing her, she seemed happy. And I threw dirt in her eyes because I couldn't understand why she seemed so happy with a family that, you know, does not belong to us. We don't belong to them. And I just wasn't doing well in school. You know, I was always getting in trouble, fighting, having problems. A few years passed, you know, being in the foster system, uh, it was every once in a while we get to meet up with our other siblings who were also in foster care. Most of the time, my grandmother was at the visits. My aunt came sometime, but I can only remember my mother one time, maybe once or twice coming. And I will always wonder, you know, where's my mom? Where's my mom? But my grandmother always came. A few years passed. My mother was able to get custody of us uh, because my grandmother was present in a home. And we go home, my mother's, she's not there to take care of us. It was my grandmother who always raised us and took care of us. So at this time, I'm growing up 10 years old, 11 years old. I finally find out the reason why I was taken away, why I was taken away, why my siblings, my sisters, my brothers were taken away. And it was due to my mom's drug addiction. And when I found out that my mom was on drugs, I didn't understand too much, but I realized, you know, she's my mom. She chose a different life over her children, you know, drugs. And we went home to be with our mom who was barely there. My grandmother continued to raise us, had us in school. We lost the apartment and we were forced to go stay with my aunt in the South Bronx. Um, this was an overcrowded apartment. You know, it was a three bedroom. My aunt has her children, her six children, and it's nine of us. My mother has nine kids, you know, and she's never raised any of us. And so we are here in um, this overcrowded apartment, sharing a bed, you know, in my family, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of people who were working. Mom was on public assistance, you know, on, on public assistance. My grandmother was a teacher in a school. She tried her best to take care of us, but you know, she's up in age. You know, here she is raising, trying to raise nine kids with the help of my aunt. And it's during this time that I began to turn to the streets. I began to, because I'm looking for love. I don't have that love at home and my family, even though my grandmother was raising us, I've never experienced love. I've never heard, I love you. I've never heard anything positive. I, I was pretty bad, you know, growing up. So I always heard negative things. 
And so I turned to the streets. And sometimes that happens when you're looking for love. You turn to all the wrong things. And so I turned to the streets. I'm living in a you know poor neighborhood, in a neighborhood where everybody else, their parents are either on drugs, an alcoholic, and their children have the same issues that I have. Either they were in foster care or they're just running the streets themselves because their parents, um, they have no guidance. Like I did not have any guidance. And so I turned to the streets and I'm doing my own thing. I was coming in and out the house when I wanted to at a young age. I started smoking weed at 12 years old, going to school, cutting school. Um, I was fighting everybody. I was always getting into fights. But I also did well in school. I played a lot of sports. I was active in school on a cheerleading team, a volleyball team. I was on a basketball team and no support. You know, I always realized I had two friends growing up and I noticed that their mom and their stepfather, they both had stepfathers, was active in their life and supported them. And when I did do, do well in school, there was no one there. There was no one there to support me. There was no one to say, great job, Shana. There was no one there to say, I love you. You know, no one there to come to my games, no one there to cheer me on when I had competitions. I did not get a chance to experience that growing up. And so it continued to make me angry and make me um, resent my mother. So whenever my mother came around, even though I loved her, I loved her, I would stay, stay up sometimes hours to the next day hoping that my mother would come. Sometimes we didn't see her for days. Sometimes we didn't see her for weeks. Sometimes we didn't hear from her until we, she called from jail. She was always in and out of jail. She was gone. And in my neighborhood, there's a lot of drug dealers and there were a lot of um, drug addicts, people who were addicted to drugs who were friends of my mom. And sometimes when I didn't see her, she was gone for maybe a week, few days. I would go to these people. I would ask drug dealers, have you seen my mom? I would ask her friends who also does drugs with her, have you seen my mom? Just always looking for her. And it built, I, I, I became so angry because now I'm growing up and I'm understanding more of, you know, what a mother should be. And I don't have that mother. I, I'm seeing my friends, you know, have a, a family life, have love, and I want it. I was jealous of them. I was so jealous of them. Um, plenty of times, sometimes I would stay overnight at their house. I would get a, you know, a good meal to eat. And my family, don't get me wrong, my family cooked, um, but they didn't always have, you know, enough in a sense of um, where we always had a home cooked meal. They were struggling as well. Again, nine of us mixed with six other, you know, my cousins and my aunt is taking care of her children, trying to raise us. My grandmother's trying to work, you know, and provide for us. And my mother would have, she gets public assistance, but she didn't spend it on us. I remember there was times when I did see her and in order for me during those days, just to get $5 or $10, I would have to follow her to the check cash in place just to get that from her because she will disappear with the money. Or when my birthday was coming up, you know, I would have to go around asking for money. There were times just coming out of school and my friends, you know, they would be in a Chinese store. I don't even have a dollar. I don't have no money to buy French fries or something that, you know, we, I love to buy after school. And I didn't have money and they would have to share with me. 
you know? So it caused me to turn to the streets even more. I, like I said, I started smoking weed at 12. I started to hate myself. I would look in the mirror and I would hate myself because I was always told that I'm gonna either be like my mother, I was gonna either die early or be in jail or be on drugs. So every time I heard those negative things concerning my mother and, and you know, um, people making a connection with me concerning that, it made me hurt myself, hate myself. And so whenever I looked in the mirror, I would just think of those things, think of my mom. And so I began to pierce my face, get piercings, trying to change my appearance. I started to get tattoos at 14 years old. I was just trying to find a way to fit in trying to find a way to feel loved. And so I turned to gangs, turned to gangs where I had to do things that, you know, I didn't want to do in the sense of fighting. I had to hurt a lot of people. I had to do a lot of things. Um, at 14 years old, well, at 13 years old, I tried to commit suicide. The thought that came into my mind where I wanted to commit suicide because I hated my life. I had just gotten into an argument with my aunt my mother wasn't there. Um, she was missing for a few days. And I just said, I don't, I don't want to live anymore. And so I took a knife and I put it to my neck. And just poking my neck was so painful. And I said, OK, I can't do it this way. And so I put it to my stomach to the side. And it was still painful. And I said, OK, I can't die this way. Then I found a rope that we use um, to jump double dutch. And I tied it around my neck and tied it to the bunk beds. We had a big wooden bunk bed in the room. And I tied it to the bunk beds and I kneeled down so that I can hang myself, but it, it was so uncomfortable and I could feel myself suffocating. So I said, I, I don't want to die this way either. Too painful, didn't like the feeling. And I saw these pills and I knew if I take these pills, I'll die in my sleep, it would be pain-free. And so there was a relative there, an aunt, that I had just met. She's a few years older than I was from my grandfather's side. Um, I didn't know I recently met her. She was there and I told her, I said, I'm gonna kill myself. And she said, I dare you. And because she said, I dare you, made me wanna do it even more. And here she is, one of my younger sisters were there at the time and she was telling me, no, no. You know, she said, Shana, don't kill yourself. And my aunt, um, she was encouraging me. She was encouraging me. She was, I dare you, I dare you, do it. You won't do it, you won't do it. And I took all five of those bottles, all five. I took it. I took those pills and I knew that in my sleep I was going to die. But by the grace of God, I woke up. But when I woke up, I felt the effects of the, the pills. And so I grabbed the bottle of pills and I went to my grandmother and I just put them all on her lap. And that's all I could remember. The next thing I remember was um, I woke up with them pumping my stomach. And I was in the hospital, my mom was there. And as sad as it is to say, this was the first time, you know, the first experience where I felt like, my mom loves me because she, she was there, you know, even though it took something so horrible, you know, to, to, for her to seem like she cares or, you know, for her to be around. And um, just the fact that she was there during this time, I felt relieved. I'm not gonna say I felt love, but I felt like, you know what, 
she cared a little bit, you know? And at one point it was making me believe that I gotta do these things in order to get some kind of love for my mom. But unfortunately, after being in the hospital for a little while, um, being on suicide watch, uh, I was released. My mom went back to living her life. I went back to running the streets. More gangs, smoking, coming home whenever I wanted, cutting school. So I decided at 15 years old that I would sell crack. I'm not working. You know, my mom is not here. I don't know my father. So at 15 years old, I started to sell crack. I started to sell weed from my aunt's house. She had no clue that I was doing it from her house. Um, I'm sure she found out when she started to see them knock on the door looking for me, when she saw other um, drug addicts come and knock on the door for me. And also at 15 years old, I met a young man. I was going to a high school on Fordham Road with some friends, actually to fight. <laughs> and there was a car passing by. And this car, from this car window, a young man yelled out, hey, hey. And I thought he was talking to my friends. Um, he got out and he was talking to me. I was only 15 years old and um, I knew he was older. I knew he was older, but I lied about my age. And I met this young man and um, I started to fall in love. It's the first time I could say that I've experienced love. Someone who loved me, someone who told me positive things. I've never had anyone tell me I was beautiful, I was talented. You know, I've never had anyone say that they love me. And here is this young man that I met who was telling me the things that I wanted to hear and I wasn't even having sex with him yet. He took me everywhere. He bought me things, he bought me clothes, he bought me shoes. You know, he was doing things that I wanted from my own family that I was not getting, I was not receiving. But something about him changed me where I calmed down in fighting and he was older than me. He was actually six years older than me and he did not know my correct age because I lied about my, my age to him. And so I knew that my 16th birthday was coming up and he was a rapper. So when I met him, I recognized him immediately from his videos on TV. He was a famous rapper. He was in a group. I don't want to mention the group's name, but um, yeah, he was a famous rapper. They had videos on BET, all, all over TV. And so he took me everywhere, took care of me. Um, and I began to change. I began to change, I, I stopped fighting and I wasn't given so much trouble. I didn't want to be home anymore. I just wanted to be with him. And I knew that, you know, because of his age and he's famous everywhere we went, people wanted his autograph, girls wanted pictures with him. I knew eventually I would have to be intimate with him. And I've never been intimate before. I've had boyfriends before in a sense where during that time, you know, we just claim each other. This is, you know, my boyfriend. He say I'm his girlfriend. Nothing too serious. I've had my first kiss with someone in the past before him, but I've never been intimate with anyone. And so I knew that this young man is much older than I am. I know that he, you know, he's experienced sexually. Um, he's sexually active. And so I decided I will ask someone, what is the right age to have sex? And I was told 16. 
and my 16th birthday was coming up. And so it was on my 16th birthday where I decided I'm going to sleep with him. He did not ask me, but I decided I was going to sleep with him. I got pregnant. I got pregnant my first time being intimate. I did not know I was pregnant until three months later. Now, you know, even though I was running the streets and messed up, I didn't watch porn. I wasn't into any kind of sexual, you know, things or anything like that. I didn't, we didn't have TV. The times were different than, you know, it is today. We had one TV that we watched. We didn't have cable. So, you know, I wasn't into, I didn't, I didn't take, um, we didn't, they didn't teach us about sex in school during that time or anything like that. So I wasn't aware of condoms. I wasn't aware of how to protect myself. I wasn't aware of how you get pregnant or anything like that. I had no mother around to tell me these things. No one has taught me these things. 16, I'm pregnant and I'm in love. I want to spend the rest of my life with this young man. So I find out, I go to the hospital, to the emergency one day for um, stomach pains and I find out that I'm pregnant. And I'm like, how am I going to tell, you know, I asked the doctor, I said, um, how did I get pregnant? And the doctor looked at me, he said, you're having sex and you don't know how you got pregnant. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but this is exactly what happened. And this was the first time where I had someone explaining to me, you know, sex and what I've done and how it happened. So I had to tell my boyfriend that I was pregnant. And so I told him, but I told my grandmother first. And my grandmother said, well, you know, you can get an abortion. You're still in high school. You're not ready for a baby. And I didn't know what abortion was at first. And she explained to me and I was all for it. I can't have a kid. Uh, you know, my life is screwed up. I don't know what it's like to be a mother because I've never had one. How am I going to raise a kid in the environment that I'm in? to go through the same, same exact things that I've gone through. And so I was all for getting abortion. And when I told my boyfriend that I was gonna get an abortion, it's when he told me it was a sin. And when I found out he was a backslider and that he did know Jesus Christ at one point. And so... And, and Shana, for anybody who doesn't know, um, just the term even backslider, um, if you could just explain what, what exactly that is. So a backslider is someone who was with the Lord, someone who was saved, born again, but they turned away from God mm -hmm. and decided to get entangled back into the world. Just to be plain, they decided to live for the devil again. They turned away from Jesus Christ. And so he's in the world and um, he's in sin. This is when he started to tell me that we're sinning. We're in sin. And I didn't fully understand. I'm 16 years old. But what I did understand was that he said abortion was murder. He said it was a sin and that God would judge me for it. And I said, I don't want to be judged. And he told me about hell. And I said, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to keep my baby. And I told my grandmother I was going to keep my baby. She wasn't too happy about it. At this time, my mom is serving years in jail. 
She's in jail serving some time. Um, she's always been in and out of jail for her drug addiction, for prostitution. You know, that comes along with that kind of lifestyle. She just always was in trouble. So she wasn't around during this time, you know, for me to let her know that I'm pregnant, for me to let her know I have a boyfriend, you know. So I'm 16, I'm pregnant, I'm keeping my baby. My family's not too happy about it. I'm not sure how to raise a child. I don't know how it's gonna work out. I'm not working, I'm still in high school. I'm living with um, my aunt still in an overcrowded apartment. I'm not making any kind of money. So how am I going to take care of this child? And my boyfriend said, we're going to live together and take care of this child. So um, that's what I expected. One day, he asked me, he said, uh, can you come with me to church to pay my tithes? And so I said, yes. I didn't think I would be going upstairs in a church with him to pay his tithes, but he invited me. And as soon as I walked into the door, the pastor was saying, she said, if you are having sex with someone that is not your husband or your wife, she said it was fornication. She said, it's a sin, you can go to hell for it. And at 16 years old, I'm five months pregnant now. I heard this and it's bothering my mind. And I'm sitting there listening to this pastor preach. I don't know anything about God, but what she said is bothering my spirit. It's bothering me, I'm feeling convicted. I didn't know that I was feeling convicted, but I knew what I was doing, what she said I was doing was wrong, is wrong. And so, I asked my boyfriend, I said, you know, the pastor said that it's a sin having sex with someone who is not your spouse, you're not married to, it's a sin. And that's when he confessed to me and he started to tell me, yes, it's a sin. And he started to tell me more about God, that, you know, one day we're going to die and God is going to judge us. We're going to have to stand before God and give an account for our soul. And it put fear in me. It put fear in me, I'm pregnant, and I'm having a baby by someone I'm not married to. And in my family, I don't know anyone that's married. I've seen guys come and go, so there was nothing positive that I can really say that I've witnessed in my family other than my grandmother working hard and growing up, my uncles, they weren't like our uncles, they didn't talk to my mom. You know, so they never really had a relationship with us, you know, so um, I didn't really see anything positive in my family. And I had to tell my boyfriend my correct age. He did not know my correct age. I'm pregnant. I'm going to have a baby by him. I had to tell him my correct age. I would say he was pretty devastated, shocked when he found out how old I was. He was six years older than I was and he can go to jail for me. And going to these doctor's appointments, he would come and the doctor, I would have to see a social worker. When they found out my, my boyfriend's age at the time, they didn't like it. They didn't like that he was older. They wanted to know if I was, you know, raped or if I'm being forced to have this baby. And I was trying to explain to them, no, I'm in love. Um, my, my family knows that I'm pregnant. They're okay with me having a baby. Uh, well, even though they weren't too okay, they had no choice. Um, I did what I wanted to do. And so we're in love. And um, 
I'm feeling convicted about having sex with a man that I'm not married to and him telling me about God. So I stopped having sex with him. I got pregnant at 16 on my 16th birthday and I gave birth during 16 before I turned 17. So me being 16, I went through so much, so much just within that one year. I give birth to uh, my son, my boyfriend. He loves him, his only child. I love him. Even though I did not know what it was like to be loved by, you know, my mother or to be loved by my father, I knew that I loved this baby that I've just given birth to. And I knew that I did not want to treat this baby the way I was treated by my mother. And it's not that my mother harmed us. My mother never harmed us. She just wasn't a mother. She wasn't there. A month later, after giving birth to uh, my son, it was around midnight. I was on my way from, I was leaving my aunt's house to go meet my boyfriend. And as I was leaving and pushing the stroller across the street, I heard a big crash. And I see people running. And I knew it was some kind of car accident. And I see my little brother just running. And I asked him, my little brother was with my boyfriend. I asked him, I said, hey, where's, you know? And he said he got hit by the car. And so I rushed over to see, and I see my boyfriend on the ground and he's crying and he was repenting of his sins. You can see that the accident was pretty bad. His leg was wide open. It was a minivan that jumped the curb. They were drag racing and the people were high and it crashed him into the front of the store. He pushed my little brother who was 10 at the, 10 at the time, 10 years old, out of the way in a car hit him and crashed him into the uh, storefront, the front of the store. You can see that it was pretty bad. Uh, he was crying, he was repenting. I actually knew the people who hit him. The paramedics came, they put him in a, uh, into the um, ambulance and rushed him to Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx where he was pronounced dead. They came out and they told me and my grandmother, they said he didn't make it. And I just thought about him repenting and asking God to forgive him of his sins. And that kept playing over and over in my mind. And so when they told me that he passed away and they asked me, they said, do you want to see the body? And I said, yes, I had my baby with me and all I can think about was that he said he did not want to raise his son the way he was raised. He said he's going to raise him in God. He said he wants him to be saved. Before this accident happened, he was talking about how he wants to give his life back to Jesus Christ. He said he wanted to turn back to Jesus. He wanted to leave the rap uh, um, you know, the rap industry, he don't, he went and got his, uh, security license so that he can work a regular job, um, just two days before he died. And so when I went in to see him and I can still see the tears just coming down his, his face, even though he's been pronounced dead, he's gone. And I have my baby just a month old and I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm back at square one. This time I have a baby with no father. And I was a child with no father, no mother around. 
And I'm just thinking the love that I've experienced is now taken away from me. It's gone. It came and it's gone. And so just a few hours later, because he was famous, it made the news, um, it circulated. A lot of people came to the area where he passed away. And the church that he took me to, when I had went and visited this church, they had me fill out a, a, a visitor's card with your information, your phone number, your address. And when they heard about it on the news, they came and they found where I lived. And I wasn't there the first time they came. Um, my aunt told me that they came and she said they would come back the next day. Next day they came back. They witnessed to me. They witnessed to me right there in my living room. And they asked me, they said, if you were to die today, where would you spend your long eternity? They said, if you died the same way he wasn't promised tomorrow and you guys were preparing to meet up with each other and never made it, never was able to meet back up with each other. They asked me, they said, if I died today, where would I spend my long eternity? And they offered me salvation right there in the living room. And I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I didn't understand it all, but I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And I got baptized and I began to serve the Lord. I began to put my faith in the Lord and trust in God. And my mother's still not around. She's still in jail. And I don't think my family understood what just happened to me. And so just a few days later, the funeral. And at the funeral, I find out that my son's father was married. I meet his wife at the funeral. You know, I'm 16 years old. All of this just happened got pregnant, you know, I'm in love. I, I'm living with him, we're living together. I have a baby, he's taken away from me and I meet his wife, he's married. And so things just began to fall apart, fall apart. And now I'm trying to serve God with my baby. And I begin to go to service, go to church twice a week. I began to go to service to finish school. I was encouraged to finish school, um, to go back. I was in high school, go back, finish school. I was encouraged to, you know, um, go ahead and get a job and take care of my baby. I didn't want my child to go into foster care. I didn't want my child to have the same struggles that I, would, that I had to face, that I had to deal with. I wanted to be able to provide and take care of my child. And I knew that I, I'm the only one that can do this. But now that I've given my life to Jesus, now that I'm baptized, I'm born again, and I'm trying to serve God, the devil crept in where he used my family to come against me. I'm 17 now, and I'm home, and I get into a fight with my uncle, who was also a drug addict as well. And we get into a fight, I call the police, press charges on him, my family was not happy, my grandmother kicked me out. She told the police I could not stay here. My baby at this time is about maybe four months. I have nowhere to go. I have nowhere to go. And the police are saying, your grandmother said you can't stay here. You're gonna have to go into a group home. I, no, I can't go into a group home. I stayed in a precinct till midnight. From around maybe like six or seven till midnight, I sat in a precinct with my baby.
I had nowhere to go. And one of my friends from junior high school, I decided to call her and let her know her mom, they came. I was able to stay with them for a few weeks. I got some clothes from my grandmother. Uh, I was angry at them. I didn't want anything to do with my family anymore. They put me out. I'm 17 years old. My mother's not around. I have nowhere to go. They knew I had nowhere to go. I couldn't stay with my friend for long. And so I called up my church and I told my church what was happening. And they found someone for me to stay with in church. I stay with a few people. I'm bouncing here and there. All I knew is that I did not want to backslide. I did not want to go back into the world. I didn't want to go back into the, go back to the streets and, and to try and provide for my child and give my child that, that wicked lifestyle, that upbringing that I had to be messed up just like me. And I told God that I said, God, I don't want my child to be like me. I don't want my son to be like me. I'm trying to trust you, but I'm struggling. I kept hearing the, the, the sermons and the preaching and, and I kept hearing the encouragement of everyone telling me that it's going to get better. God is going to change it. Just trust him. And so I continued to be faithful to the Lord and, and trust him. I never went back to the streets. I never tried to find a man to take care of me. I didn't have to turn back to, to marijuana. marijuana. I did not have to go back to selling drugs. I didn't even go back to my family. I trusted God through my struggles. And at 18 years old, I ended up getting my own apartment in Harlem. My baby is one, my son is one years old now, and I'm still faithfully serving God, faithfully serving God. And the Lord brought my husband into my life from my church. And that's what God will do when you trust him and you believe in him and you stay faithful. He keeps his promises. He keeps his promises because I met a man in the church who God told I'm his wife and revealed also to me that he's my husband. And I'm thinking, I'm wondering, there's no one I know in my family that's married. I don't know anything about being a wife, but this man loved me and he was willing to be a father to my son who was not his biological son. And I could see where God was just changing me. I was, I was telling God, I said, God, all that I'm going through, I always thought I was worthless. I always thought I was garbage. I always thought that the way I was brought up, that my past was who I am. But I easily learned in Christ Jesus that your past does not dictate your future in God. And God was showing this to me, that he had something better that his thoughts towards me was not evil, but they were good. And I, I had an expected end. And so I continued in the Lord and I trust the Lord and I got married. I got married. I met my husband. I got married. I married going on 20 years now and serving God. And I was able to raise my son my son in the church, oh, I have three children now, raise them. But what God did for me, what God did for me, because I was able to bring my family to Jesus Christ. I was able to bring, you know, them to the church for them to give their life. And some of them got baptized. So God used me when I thought that my past 
defined me, God showed me that it advanced me. And I was able to use my testimony, like what I'm doing now, share my testimony to those, to my relatives, to my sisters, to my brothers, to those who are in the shoes that I once filled, to bring them to Christ, bring them to Jesus Christ. And my life was turned around. And when my mother came home out of jail, I was able to bring her to church mm. for her to give her life to Jesus Christ. And that is what God has done in my life. He has changed me. I was able to have a great home. I remember where um, because, because of uh, my sisters, my brothers, my mom was in jail, we were in my aunt's apartment and, you know, she was on government's assistance, Section A, where the government helps you, um, you know, get your apartment, uh, help pay for your rent. They found out that there are people on the lease who don't belong there. So we had to go, else she would lose her apartment. And so we had to go into a shelter. Going through the shelter and being kicked out at 17, God has did a 360 turn for me. He changed my life around because I went from being homeless. I went from being homeless to owning my own home. That's what God can do for you. At just, just 20, I went to owning my own home. I was homeless at one time, but I owned my own home. I had nothing. And today, trusting in God, I'm the author of two books, two powerful books. I'm an international evangelist. Not only have I preached um, around in um, America, but I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and share my testimony around the world. Physically, God has used me to touch people in different countries with my testimony, with the gospel, with my books. And that is what I'm doing with my testimony today. Shayna, for, for anybody who maybe is dealing with some of the things that you dealt with, but specifically when it came to that hardened heart, right, because of the upbringing, if you could just share a little bit, and you did a little bit, but if you could give us a little bit of more insight into how God began to soften your heart in, in your processing of walking with him, what are some things that come to mind of when... God was taking you through that process of kind of removing all of that you had gone through and now being with him. So I was in my apartment one day. My son was one years old. And even though I had my apartment, I was still struggling financially. And I had no money to buy food. And I have a one-year-old son. At this time, I have not been in contact with my family for over, an, over a year. And so I had nobody to turn to. And I got down on my knees and I asked God, I said, God, I'm trusting you. I believe in you. I've seen what you have done so far, but I still need help. I still need help. I was struggling with forgiveness still. I was struggling with resentment towards my mother. And it was at that moment where God said, give it to me. I heard him. He said, give it to me. Give it all to me. Release it to me. And I was able to release it to him. As I cried out to him, I was able to release it to him. And I realized that 
like you said, my heart became soft and in, in a sense where immediately I reached out to my family. Mm. I haven't spoken to them in over a year. I don't even believe they tried to find me. They knew when I left, my son was just a few months old. My son was close to being two years old now. I have not gone back to visit them. My mother was still in jail at the time. And so I reached out to my grandmother. I reached out to them and I went to visit them. I went to visit them and I realized forgiveness. The forgiveness started to come into my heart. And even though no one has apologized, I forgave them. I forgave them. And I had to let go of that resentment towards my mother while she was in jail. In order for me to love her when she came home, God had to work on my heart while she wasn't there. Hmm. And it took a lot of prayer from my pastors. It took a lot of prayer from myself. It took a lot of fasting to release it because those are demons, spirit of unforgiveness and resentment and hatred. Those are demons. And some things, Jesus says, some things cannot come out, but through prayer and fasting. That's right. But it was then when I realized, just give it all to Jesus. Give it, give it all to him. He said, give him our burden. And that's what I did. I gave him my burden and I felt the deliverance. I felt the release. I felt that weight on my shoulder was, was gone. Shana, for people who are, are in that space of uh, holding on to resentment, holding on to all of that in their heart, what is, what is a word of encouragement that you can give them right now? Holding on to it is going to destroy you. You won't ever heal. You won't get far. If you hold on to that resentment, you have to replace it with love. God is love. Jesus Christ is love. It's because he loved us that he gave his life for us, right? You have to forgive. He said, forgive so that your father in heaven may forgive you. If you have Jesus Christ in you, if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you must love. You have to love. You have to let it go. You have to forgive. It may not be easy. But it's possible. It can be done through Jesus Christ. You can't do it on your own. I couldn't do it on my own. It took Jesus to give me that love that he has for me in order for me to, to, to give out that love to those who have hurt me, to those who have abandoned me, to those who, who seem like they wanted nothing to do with me. So if you are experiencing that right now, Give it to Jesus and God will replace it with love. He will give you a heart of forgiveness because he, he has forgiven you. If you ask him for forgiveness, he said he's faithful and just to forgive you. And sometimes we have to forgive even when the person has not asked for forgiveness. That's the love of God. That's deliverance. That's what salvation does for you. It changes your heart. Shana, if you could speak to you as a child, if you could have a moment to speak with that child, what, what would you say to yourself? I love you. Jesus loves you. That your past, whatever you're going through, God has something greater. You have a purpose. You are called. 
before you was even formed in your mother's womb. God has a purpose for you. That it may seem like there's no hope. You may feel unloved. You may feel like the streets, the streets is the answer. You may feel like turning to people who are in the same situation as you are will help you um, feel loved or comfort you. I would tell you, come to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. God can change it. You have a purpose in God. You're here for a reason. You're here for a reason. God has kept you for a reason. Shana, who is Jesus to you? Jesus to me is exactly who he says he is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the creator of this world and all things in it. He is a friend of all. He is a healer of the sick. He's a provider. He's a deliverer. He's a way maker. He is the giver of life and peace to all who will accept him. He is the Christ, not because Peter said it, but because he has revealed himself to me and I'm able to wit be a witness to what Peter has said. Amen. He is the son of God. He is God. And there is no other like Jesus Christ. He is the only answer. Shana, any last words for people who may be watching your testimony and have gotten to this part of uh, uh, your story? Yes, those of you who are watching, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, get to know him. He says in Matthew 11 and verse 28, he said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's calling you who are broken, those of you who are oppressed, suffering and trouble. He said, come unto me and find rest for your soul. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Nothing and no one else will meet your deepest needs. Not money, not fame, not a successful career, not a car, not a house, not even religion, not sex, not alcohol, not drugs. Without God, your life is broken. Your life will be needy. Your life will be in vain because he created you to be connected to him. So if you're not saved, give your life to Jesus. He's calling for you. He says, today is the day of salvation. He will forgive you. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It does not matter where you come from. Jesus is calling you. And those of you who are in the body of Christ, my sisters and my brothers, my encouragement to you is to endure. Endure to the end. I know the times are hard. I know it's not easy. I know the devil is out seeking whom he may devour, but endure to the end. Jesus is your prize. Don't compromise. Don't bow. Don't give in. Endure until you reach heaven or heaven. You will be in heaven longer than you will be on this earth.